Over the past few months, today's guest has been charting and sharing her learning from her first days, weeks and months in post as a new CEO. After her first 100 days, she published a report about all she's learned and how it's shaping her priorities. I highly recommend you reading it if you want a masterclass on how to demonstrate engagement, get buy-in and land well in your new role. I'm Lee Griffith, a communications strategist, executive coach and all-round champion of leaders who shun the old-school stereotypes. I'm here to help you get clear on your strategy, implement some self-leadership and connect with those you serve through your communications so that you can deliver improved organisational performance, engagement and reputation. Sign up to my newsletter to receive even more useful insights into how to be an impactful leader. You can also find out how I can support your organisation to better connect with the people it serves. Visit sundayskies.com to find out more. In this episode, I'm talking with Laura Scaife-Knight, CEO of NHS Orkney. Laura has over 20 years of experience working in the NHS and is known for her work to improve patient and staff engagement. It may come as no surprise that Laura's background is in communications, which actually, side note, is how we first met. And if you follow her online, you'll know she sees this as integral to her role as CEO. We talk about the path to become chief executive, how to take people with you as a leader, building and rebuilding organisational cultures and the work she does to advocate for equality and inclusion. Enjoy. Hello, Laura. So firstly, thank you so much for joining us on the Leaders with Impact podcast. I'm delighted that you've come on. For those who won't know, we kind of know each other in a, in a past life, as it were, in our old hats as communications directors many, many years ago. And neither of us are doing that now. But I think probably explore this a bit later on. Comms still plays a massive role in, in what you do. It certainly does in, in what I do, even though we're perhaps not living the same kind of professional life as we did then. I want to start our conversation though, if you don't mind, with a question that I ask everyone, which is what does impactful leadership look and feel like to you? Thank you so much for having me on. I think a few key things from my perspective. Firstly, it's having that ability to inspire people and take people with you. And I think you achieve that in multiple ways, really. Firstly, by gaining credibility in any organisation. And at the heart of that, I think it's about really being yourself, being comfortable in your own skin and knowing how to inspire people and support people sometimes through some really difficult and challenging times in organisations and fundamentally inspiring confidence by getting results for an organisation and underlying all of that for me is the importance of visible leadership. Yeah that visibility and the credibility by being yourself are are really important elements and I definitely want to touch on that a bit later but I want to touch on your career path because you've had a really interesting one you started out as a journalist I understand and then you've moved into management roles and senior management roles you're now the chief exec of the NHS up in Orkney I wonder what shaped you growing up as a person and how that's perhaps influenced your career and your approach to leadership? Thank you. That's a really good question. I think a few things really. I am from a very sporting background. So from my early teens, really through to my 30s, I've been very competitive and played a range of sport. And I think that gives you a certain discipline, whether you like it or not, gives you that discipline around training, 
really constantly wanting to raise the bar, do the best for yourself and your team ultimately. And working in the NHS is all about working as a team and developing great teams. And we'll perhaps return to that a little bit later. So I think that sporting discipline put me in good stead. I think secondly, really, that work ethic and working hard, that's always been with me. I've always been one to get up in the morning and train, whether it's going to tennis coaching, coaching other people, going for a run and just practicing different sports. That's been ingrained in me from when I was really young. And then finally, as I've got into my career, I've been really fortunate to work with some truly amazing leaders in the NHS. And I've learned from those colleagues over the last 25 years, taking the best bits from those colleagues, but then really thought, how do I want to lead? And I think being given those opportunities, I perhaps have been in the right place at the right time to take those opportunities. But people have put faith in me. And what I'm now trying to do is turn that around on its head to say, people have put faith in me. I know there are loads of brilliant and bright stars working here. And those colleagues need an opportunity like I've had over the last 20 plus years. So the path from journalist to chief exec perhaps isn't an obvious one. Mm -hmm. What changed for you in your career that's made you make that shift? Brilliant, brilliant question. I think, firstly, I knew I wanted to be a director of comms. And people yeah. ask me this regularly. Always wanted to be a director of comms. And I achieved that before I was 30. So you could argue I peaked too soon. But <laughs> that's perhaps for another debate in another day. I did not know I wanted to be a deputy chief exec. And I certainly didn't know I wanted to be a chief exec. So I think it's really important that I let people know who are watching and listening. I did not set out on this path. I was given an opportunity and people believed in me. And five months into this role as chief exec, other people will judge me. I still don't know if this is what I want to do longer term or not. We will see because I didn't really set out on this path. This is where I, I really ended up. So I think just bear that in mind as you go. You don't have to set out on a path and have an end destination. It's about what feels right for you, pushing yourself constantly and making sure you're happy doing what you're doing. And as I really has had been a director of comms, certainly for the last 15, 20 years, I realised that I was taking on things above and beyond comms. So different projects, bigger projects, strategic projects, different pieces of strategic work, if you like. My portfolio grew and grew and grew, probably without knowing it in the end. And after being a director of comms for quite a long time. So I think that's when I was offered the opportunity to become Deputy Chief Exec, which I took. And that's when really I had a much bigger portfolio of things like culture, corporate strategy, system strategy, digital information, just to give a few examples. And initially I thought, I have never done this stuff before. How can I possibly do this? But again, people said, you can do it. And actually, underlying all of those things is really great comms and engagement when you really think about it. Project management and knowing how to fix things, take people with you and get results. And that's why I really believe directors of comms are well positioned to go on to do whatever they want to do, whether it's chief exec work, whether it's chief operating officer work. I think the world is our oyster, really, as a director of comms. I love that. You said that it wasn't in the plan to be deputy CEO or to be CEO, and you don't even know if that's the longer term thing for you. What's going to be your litmus test, I suppose, that it is the right thing? I guess a few things. I think always ask for feedback. I ask for feedback every single day. I'll ask people, how did I do in that meeting? What do you think? Give me some honest feedback. So that constant feedback, am I performing well? Am I doing well in my role? Is there things I can do better? Because we are learning every minute of the day and that's constantly at the forefront of my mind. I think getting results for the organisation, but fundamentally getting results for our patients, local community and staff. And we're clear 
what that looks like. And I will be measured against delivering on the corporate plans strategy, clinical strategy, and contributing to the system strategy. And then I think finally, do I enjoy what I'm doing? For me, it's a package of those things around results, what people think and feedback, because we are judged on that, whether we like it or not. And then I'm happy doing what I'm doing. Do I truly think I'm adding value? And have you had to focus on anything in particular to support your development as you've moved into, as you say, new areas of your portfolio that perhaps you hadn't managed or been responsible for before, as you've moved into more senior roles and stepped away from your area of expertise, your comfort zone? What have you had to really focus? Have you done any particular training or have have there been particular areas where you felt like you needed to do more to feel comfortable? I think a few things. I never feel comfortable. And Mm. people always say, how can you be ultra confident? You always look like you're on your game. I am constantly outside of my comfort zone. So I think people think in these jobs, you have this invincibility about you. Trust me, I worry about things every minute of the day. I think just keeping grounded is really important in that regard. So I think a few other things really. Deputy Chief Exec in my previous role in Norfolk put me in really good stead because I had a bigger portfolio and it really tested me. But what I really realized is it's not about being an expert in those things, whether it's digital strategy, improvement, transformation, or whatever the equivalent is. It's about knowing how to ask the right questions. You have heads of service, you have others around you, certainly in larger trusts. And I think it's about trusting those colleagues to be the experts and subject matter experts. But as the director lead or deputy chief exec, now chief exec, being able to ask the right questions and holding those colleagues to account So I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing is I am big, big believer in always appoint people better than you. You're only as good as your team. Never, ever see colleagues who are better than you as a threat. I always constantly thinking that when I'm recruiting because we are only as good as our teams and we should never lose sight of that. And I think the third thing, Lee, is I have loads of people around me who I work with, whether it's coaching, mentoring, people I just pick up the phone to and say, what do you think? Can I share this, run this by you? Now in Scotland, there is an absolutely fabulous network of chief execs nationally. We all support each other every day, every week. And a combination of all of those things, we don't know the answers to everything, but we've got a really fantastic peer network. And I know the Commons Director Network is really strong as well. And Mm. people should really tap into that. Yeah. Your network, as you've alluded to, mm-hmm. changes and shifts as you grow and develop in your role and, and the types of people that you need around mm-hmm. you might need to change and you shouldn't feel bad about that. People Absolutely. can feel guilty. <laughs> Absolutely agree. I think also learning from your own mistakes. Mm. Don't repeat mistakes. I think back to different chapters of my career when big things have happened, smaller things have happened, but constantly thinking, actually, let's learn from that because there are themes, trends, if we look back, at certain moments in your career, I regularly return to those things and think, actually, what did I learn? Let's not repeat that mistake. So I think it's just keeping those things in your locker and thinking, even in the last few weeks, the things I've gone back to and thought, okay, Lucy Letby case is a really good current example. If you look back at big events in the NHS, there are themes that we will all be able to relate to as directors of comms. So really thinking through, what is my role in this? What have I learned from my own career? Because I think there's things within all of this that would resonate with us. Yeah, yeah. How's your leadership style changed over the years as you've moved into different roles, different organisations? I think my confidence has grown massively. 
Mm. I mentor a lot of people and one of the big things to say, certainly to directors of comms is, as a director of comms, you're not just there at the table to talk about comms things. You should be at the table talking about anything around that board table. So I think my confidence has grown massively. The thing that's probably changed over the last two or three years for me is being comfortable in my own skin. And when I took this job, I took a really deliberate decision to be nothing other than myself because I think sometimes people come into these jobs thinking, I will be what I think that organisation wants me to be. And I have stayed really true to that. From the moment I was interviewed to now running the organisation, I am entirely consistent in being myself, you know, how I behave, how I talk about what I believe in. I'm completely consistent and I'm really comfortable with that rather than being somebody that I think the organisation wants me to be, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Can you draw on any examples where perhaps you didn't feel in the past that you haven't felt? I suppose, what what are you actively doing differently now to, to them when you didn't feel you perhaps being as authentic? I think not feeling my voice was as valued compared, for instance, to a medical director, to a chief operating officer, to a chief nurse. For instance, I think there are still occasions when thinking back to my director of comms days where you think, actually, I'm lower down the pecking order. And absolutely not. Comms professionals can add value in so many ways. And I think in some ways, even more ways, because you've got that helicopter view of the world and it's our job to hold the mirror up to the organisation. So I think absolutely being clear, your voice is as powerful as anybody else's around that table. And I think one of my many regrets is I look back and thought I could have added value in that conversation, but I chose not to. I chose not to be part of it because actually clinical colleagues in that instance took precedence but actually my voice was as powerful as anybody whereas now I wouldn't hesitate and it's probably easier for me to say because when you're chief exec you can probably get away with more things in many respects but I do look back thinking I could have added value there most definitely Yeah, I've been following with interest your first 100 days as chief exec in NHS Orkney. One of the things I do with leaders I work with is help them with looking at making sure they've got a really clear plan of action when they step into a role. Often leaders can feel there's a pressure, I suppose, to show their value from day one and therefore get into this place where they can overwhelm themselves and the organisation because there's lots of newness that they feel they need to bring in. Obviously, there are exceptions when you have people that come in in that fixer mode and might have to execute in that way. But I would say in most cases, the bravest thing to do when you start a new job is to not do anything and to invest time and energy into getting to know the place and its people. And I know you've done that in abundance and you've been really open and communicative, not only within your organisation, but externally as well. If anyone's interested, can follow you on, on LinkedIn and whatever to see your progress. But I'm interested in your thought process as you began to think about how you were going to approach this role and I suppose what steps you took and that kind of conscious decision of how you were going to enter I think a few things. Firstly, I took time, probably a good three or four months before I started in post, to speak to other very seasoned and experienced chief execs to get their thoughts on. They've gone into new roles, many new chief exec roles. What was their approach? That's where I, amongst other things, got the idea around the 100-day plan and how I would approach that. I think, secondly, I heard loads of feedback about what people thought, again, before I'd even arrived in this building and in Orkney, about what people thought about certain colleagues, where the organisation was. But I made a really conscious decision that I would make my own mind up and that I would do that. 
by listening to staff about what it's like to work here, listening to our partners and stakeholders about what it's like to work with us, and listening to our patients about what it's like to receive care here, and that I would formulate my own view. I didn't want to come in and have already a fixed view, so I was very clear I will make up my own mind and I've got a really clear formula for doing that. And that's precisely what I've done by really taking care to listen over the last four to five months in particular. So I could really set out my stall based on evidence, not based on anybody else's opinion. What surprised you most in your first hundred days? I don't think there was anything that I perhaps didn't already know about based on the recruitment process, the homework I'd done about NHS Orkney. I think what really saddened me is that many of the things we're not getting right in the organisation at the moment are actually quite basic things. Frustrations where things don't move forward, staff don't hear back from certain colleagues in the organisation and things go into a bit of a black hole or just staff not feeling listened to. And actually, all of those things are really basic and fundamentals for me. I think it was the fact that on a really basic level, we were and still are today, let's be really honest, letting staff down. Mm -hmm. And for me, that's a complete home go. Yeah. And if you had to change anything in your approach from where you thought you perhaps needed to be at the beginning? I think I've had to really take time to understand the culture here. Working for an island board, and just for context, Orkney has a population of 22,000 people. It is a really different culture. And I think understanding that, really taking time to get underneath the skin of that, you have to understand the backstory to things, why the culture is what it is, specifically being part of an island community in a remote and rural area. That's really important to truly understand that before you try to make changes that perhaps are not going to land because that's Orkney has a certain way of thinking, doing things. And there's always a history and backstory that I think is important that we all understand. Mm, Yeah. And people can I'm assuming there's almost that family feel in some places and and you've come in from the outside. There's that sense of it will take time to build that trust, won't it? Very much so. And that's why it's really important that we relocated, bought a house here. And actually, as I regularly say, I'm part of the local community here. This is my hospital. It's my local community. It's my home. And I think that message was a really important one. But I think being part of such a small community, everybody does know everybody. Talk about a goldfish bill, probably never been more true than living and working in Orkney. And that does take some getting used to. Actually, I'll ask you now. So the goldfish bill is really interesting. And I've interviewed a chief exec at a local council and that sense of you you live and breathe that local area. You absolutely do as well with the role that you do and where you're based. How are you finding that? How do you do the switch off, I suppose, between home life and work life when, as you say, you are in that goldfish bowl? I think that is hugely challenging. I think I'm still getting used to it. I had a taster of that when I lived and worked in Norfolk, which, as you will all know, is quite a rural area. But this takes it to a whole other level, I think it's fair to say, because you are constantly on show, whether you're going into the shops, where you're going to the co-op, Tesco, you always see people who you know. And I think you've really got to understand we're all human at the end of the day and we all have a right to have a personal life and a private life as much as we need to. But actually, it's even harder here because everybody knows everyone. So I'm still getting used to it, I must admit. But I think it's knowing where there are professional boundaries and where you say, this is work. And actually, I can still be me, but this is home as well. And that Mm. that is tricky. It's really hard. Yeah, yeah. So I read 
your report on your first 100 days, which as a side note, I'd recommend to anyone who wants to learn how to enter into an organisation and to do that listening piece and importantly, close the loop around, around what they've heard. What came across was the themes, and you've touched on some of this around culture, leadership, retention, getting the basics right, as, as you mentioned. And they are probably themes that feel familiar to many leaders in their own organisations, but often they can get overlooked for maybe the sexier or the shinier stuff, or they get lost in the overwhelm of operational pressures or general things that need to get tackled. The point you made that I really loved in the plan was the plan needs to be the plan and we, we can't have all this other stuff coming in throwing us off course. So I'm interested in how you're going to approach staying on course control, I suppose. This is something I'm really, really hot on and I really learned in my last role at Queen Elizabeth Hospital when I was Deputy Chief Exec in Norfolk. In the NHS, we have a real tendency to start off with a set of priorities, keep adding to that set of priorities, and before you know it, it's really unclear what the priorities are. I am absolutely crystal clear. Plan is the plan. That's the plan for the year. We are clear, then we even split it up into quarters. That's what we've got to achieve by quarter, and we report back on a quarterly basis. How are we doing against that plan? Where we're off track, what are we doing about it? So we've got line of sight. But as my chair knows, every day I challenge when something gets added to the pile, I say the plan is the plan. We either take something off the pile and stop doing something. We can't keep adding to the plan because otherwise we lose focus and we lose our own credibility in the organisation by setting out with a set of priorities, but then changing the goalposts as they go. If the goalposts change because of a policy change or a strategy change or a national directive, for instance, that is different. But actually, I think it's having the discipline to stick with the plan and measure progress in really quite a relentless way. And how personally can you make sure that happens? You can't be everywhere, I suppose. So what's what's going to be your approach to make sure that everyone knows the plan is the plan? <laughs> so I think a few things, really communicating that and getting signed off from the board fundamentally, because that's getting permission to agree that is the plan in the first place. What we do here is align every single agenda in the organisation is under our strategic objectives. So it's crystal clear, why are we talking about this? And if it's not linked to the strategic objectives, it does not get onto the agenda. So it gives you that rigour and discipline to really stick with the priorities. Again, going back to the strategic priorities of the organisation. I've taken that a step further, Lee. Every single bit of internal communications we do sits and relates back to a strategic objective. So again, Crystal clear, we're talking about this because we told you it was a priority and indeed you told us it was a priority to improve in these areas. So you get that golden thread from board down to agendas and the governance in the organisation, down to the staff communications as well. And don't hmm. deviate from that. It's about being disciplined. And it sounds like you've probably had to do quite a lot of work with your board and the senior executive team so that they're aligned with you on that. How have you approached getting that alignment and buy-in and I know that's something that you talked about as being a yep. priority at the beginning firstly relationships are everything in everything we do aren't they let's be really honest especially in these roles relationships with the chair absolutely key certainly for a chief exec relationships with your exec team and building a strong exec team and relationship with the non-execs and I think really chunking it down to understand what relationships do we think we need 
and actually knowing where we start from and what do you want time do you want to invest not just in the formal set pieces as I call it actually it's the informal conversations that are the most important in my experience so relationship building and investing time in that I think being really clear with the board and this is what I've tried to achieve through my 100 day plan do we all agree that change is necessary in the first place before you go off down a route and that's what I've really tried to do with the 100 day report it's not my plan and report this is the board's report and we've all got to take this forward so it's about how do you get that collective ownership as a single board or a unitary board to really evidence do we all sign up to this because no individual can deliver this including myself and I've been really clear on that and I think it's about no surprises and being brutally honest at times and I know that can be hard to hear and people sometimes struggle with directness and honesty, but actually organisations don't move forward without that. Yeah, there was a line in your report that struck me, which was acknowledging that not everyone's going to agree with your approach and might have different opinions. Have you had much challenge? I really haven't, actually. I think not challenged because people have really agreed with the content of the report, both our staff and our external partners and stakeholders. I think the nervousness, if I'm really honest with you, was around how brave the report was and the content of it. What I fed back is I'm not prepared to dilute anything down because this is my own credibility on the line. This is what people have shared with me and I have a responsibility to be authentic in my approach and I'm not prepared to deviate from that so I think there was a nervousness around how will people take this has it gone too far but actually I'm comfortable that I held my line and held my own ground on that. You've touched on authenticity quite a bit in our conversation and I know from conversations we've had in the past and seeing the types of things you talk about on social media you're a really strong advocate for women's rights and women leadership, LGBTQ plus rights, black and ethnic minority, disability. So equality and inclusion really matter to you and that comes across. I'm interested in how your approach to advocacy might have changed as you've progressed in your career and maybe some of the challenges and barriers that you've worked to overcome during your career as well, Mm. if you don't mind. No, of course. And you're absolutely right. I am hugely passionate about equity and creating an inclusive culture in the organisation. And I think some of this really goes back to basics again for me, Lee, in terms of no matter what role you play in an organisation, whether you are the top consultant, the chief exec, or a reporter or a cleaner, we all bring something different to the table. What I try to do through my leadership is really break down those barriers and hierarchies and actually demonstrate we are all people and human at the end of the day. We all have feelings and we all have our own strengths that we can bring to the table. And if we actually embrace those, we'll be a fantastic team. And I try to do that in different ways every day of the week, Mm. drawing on my own experience. Mm. How does that manifest itself, I suppose? Because it can, and I'm not saying this of any organisations you've worked in, but witnessing it myself in organisations, they can become tick box or they sit with some a certain person within an organisation. So how have you, I suppose, challenged that? You're absolutely right. It's about meaningful engagement. So through meaningful engagement, being clear, how do we listen to feedback and involve others and lead to a better experience for patients or staff at the end of the day. It it translates into the, where do we move from conversations to results and what's different at the end of the day, rather than just talking about things and not moving forward. I'll give you an example. Tonight, I'm going to one of the youth cafes here in Kirkwall to meet the LGBT group after work. 
I will spend a couple of hours with those colleagues about what's it like for you to receive care in Orkney at the moment. What do we get right? But what needs to change? And I will commit not to changing the world because I can't, because we haven't got the money to do that or the ability to do that. But one, I'll be honest about that. And two, I'll pick a couple of things that I know are changeable for the better for our LGBT community and I'll commit to following that through. So I'm not just paying lip service to it. I'm going tonight for a cup of tea and a nice piece of cake. I'm going to actually genuinely listen and to make positive change without mm. promising the earth. Mm. I'm also interested in, I don't know much about the Orkneys. You, you said you've got a population of 22,000. There's lots of little islands, aren't there? Yeah, I, I, <laughs> my geography is not great. Um, but I wonder what it's like when you work somewhere as remote as that so I'm thinking when you work in maybe a rural organization in a city you have people who have a lot of choices about where they want to work there's competition and different things that might pull them when you work in in more rural places or more remote places Perhaps the reason people choose your organisation to work at are, are not motivated in the same way. So it could be more lifestyle than a career or a profession. And that I would see perhaps causing issues with how you keep them motivated, how you engage them with the strategic stuff, because maybe the job isn't as important to them. I'm being really broad brushed with that comment because I know that won't be the case all across the board. So how do you start to build a culture and tackle some of that when people might be in a different place to you in how they view the organisation and their place in it? I think if hit the nail on the head, it's hugely challenging. And you're right, the geography is quite unusual here. So we, just for context, there are about 70 islands in Orkney, just under 20 of those are inhabited. And there's everything from a few dozen people living on those Ireland dials to several hundred. So firstly, I am trying to go out to as many of those isles as I can. In fact, tomorrow I'm visiting Westray with our chief officer to meet colleagues because I think it's not until you're out on the aisles you realise how challenging it is in terms of delivering great patient care, just the setup there in terms of primary care, access to secondary care, but also there are lots of sole practitioners and single-handed practitioners working there who feel really detached from the world. And that's before we even get into technology and connectivity and so on. And the challenges of when ferries are cancelled, some of those remote islands have aeroplanes that link. So, for instance, I'm getting the ferry across tomorrow and I'm flying back. And that's like getting the bus here. So it's just the very nature of it is totally different. I think when you have people here, like in Orkney, I'm generalising again, Lee, but the vast majority will spend their whole career here. What we have to do is work doubly hard to think okay, how do we make sure we keep up with clinical standards, upskill staff, offer staff opportunities to go to the mainland, so other territorial health boards in Scotland, whether it be um, Aberdeen, Glasgow or Edinburgh, to keep their skills set up, support with innovation, learn from other colleagues, because when you are so remote, there's a real risk that we de-skill staff and actually don't invest in that training and development. So you've just got to think about things a little bit differently. But equally, I think because of our remoteness and uniqueness, actually, we are a test bed for innovation because it forces us to think and work differently, for instance, with Shetland or the Western Isles, because actually island boards should be that kind of hub of innovation, if you really think about it, because if we can do it in some of the smallest health boards, then we should be able to upscale that innovation to the larger territorial health boards. So I think it's it's all of those things, but it is an extra challenge. And I think 
probably the final thing, and this is com- will come as no surprise to you. There's a lot of resistance to change here in terms of the we have always done things for however many decades. And I think it's just trying to move that agenda forward, but doing it in a respectful way mm-hmm. and in a way that takes people with you. And you mentioned you came from Norfolk before you moved to the Orkneys. And I'm assuming it won't necessarily be exactly the same, but it also, again, a more rural communities, perhaps not the same opportunities than those based in bigger city organisations. What learning from your experience might be in the back of your mind, I suppose, as you, as you go forward? A whole heap of learning, I think, one, because of the rurality of, of Norfolk. And you may recall when um, myself and the team went into Norfolk, we were the worst performing hospital in the country on every single indicator. I'm not suggesting that's where we are from an Orkney perspective, but there is certainly room for improvement when it comes to organisational culture, improvements, improving staff engagement and experience, our financial position. And I think some of the recruitment and retention challenges we've got, what comes with that, especially with such a high proportion of agency staff and locums, you have that transient workforce. So building that culture and stability you have to work doubly hard and differently to do that recognizing for instance here we'll have some consultants who are here doing a list this week they won't be back for four five six weeks so you have real transients here that it just takes a little bit of getting used to really but some similarities in those areas that I could certainly bring to the table here but equally there is just as an island board, there are some real unique factors that I'm now learning from other island boards, including, as I said, Shetland and Western Isles here, but elsewhere in the UK. Mm. Is it less about getting them bought into big strategy stuff and more about, I hate the phrase, but improving their working lives and their practice? I think it's got to be a bit of both. One of the things I've really learned, and I think we've probably all learned coming through COVID, is there's a real tendency in the NHS to focus on the here and now constantly. What are we doing in the next hour? Never mind the next day or the next week or the next month. You have to do the here and now, but balance that with looking at the next five to 10 years. And that's what I'm really trying to do here, future-proof this organisation to make sure we have a sustainable future whilst tackling the challenges of today. And that's hard, but I'm really forcing myself to do that. Otherwise, we will never get onto some of the strategic issues that are really important and that will impact on the health care of people in Orkney for the next decades to come. So I've already started turning my attention as I'm dealing with the issues here and now, improving culture, being as visible as I can, trying to make sure I spend the time on the strategic issues that are going to take us forward in the decades to come. Mm. One of the things that struck me in your report back on your 100 days, actually, was the sense of recruitment and retention, but with a view to leadership development and how do we identify the leaders of the future because they are going to be homegrown and perhaps more there than anywhere else. So that really struck me. Mm. Very much so. And I think, again, it comes back to basics, really thinking through leadership development programs and personal development, but succession planning. So we've already started that. That started with the exec team. It will then cascade down to the rest of the organisation, because what we can't afford to do here, probably more than anywhere, is lose really great people. We talk about recruitment and retention. I'd actually say retention here is even more important than recruitment, if I dare say that in many Mm. ways. Yeah. I want to briefly explore the reality of being a chief exec. So there's the perception that you get to make all the decisions and you've got ultimate control. But obviously, with that comes a lot of responsibility. How do you manage the day to dayness of being chief exec? The first thing is the level of responsibility. So when you have a portfolio and you can 
wrap your arms around that portfolio. That's a big enough responsibility, isn't it? Sat at the board with that level of responsibility. But I remember, Lee, and I tell this story quite a lot, when I was deputy chief exec, I remember the morning I was driving to work and my chief exec was off on holiday for two or three weeks for the first time I was stepping up to chief exec and I remember driving into work thinking oh my gosh the book truly stops with me and I know it sounds really stupid and really obvious but it's not until you have to do it that you realize the level of weight and responsibility on your shoulders if that makes sense what it really makes me do is just pause around any decision I'm making am I doing the right thing am I truly putting the interests of patients and staff first can I sleep in my bed if I make this decision at night or as sleep as well as I can do at night anyway? It's that sense of responsibility as a accountable officer that is completely different. However, you have to rely on your exec team because you can't do everything as chief exec. Now, we are the smallest territorial health board here in Orkney, so I have chosen to have my own portfolio to demonstrate I've got to deliver as much as anybody else. But actually, the role of the exec team is absolutely critical in terms of that delivery, and then, of course, building that capacity and capability further down the organisation. So what does a typical day look like for you? No two days are the same, I think it's fair to say. And probably the other thing I'd say is I really underestimated, just before we get into that answer, I really underestimated the difference between England and Scotland. It is very, very different. It's obvious, but it's even more different when you're in the system doing the job. And most case for the better, because there's fewer layers. If you look at the governance and the setup here, there's just a lot to get your head around and there's more differences than perhaps people might think between the English NHS system and the Scottish system. But no two days are the same here. There will be days when I'm chairing lots of meetings, senior leadership team meetings, we've got board meetings, we've got our board subcommittee meetings, and you will know as well as anyone, you've got to be on your A game all of the time in these jobs, but even more so when you're in those formal settings. Lots of system meetings, so we have integration joint boards meetings here with our local authority partners, and I sit with a number of other public sector chief execs on different groups so that I can really add the NHS voice into making Orkney a better place to live and work. So probably lots of responsibilities out with my health hat, if that makes sense. So much more about how we really focus on local community here in Orkney and also real focus on reducing health inequalities and improving outcomes in Orkney as a place to live and work. It's really out of the day-to-day, I suppose, what I would call the acute pressures. Don't get me wrong, it's still there because we've still got an A&E, but a small A&E. But what that means is the work I can do is much more about improving society here in its broadest sense. It's So it feels like a broader portfolio, even though it's a small organisation. Yeah. And how do you split your time? Because you talked a lot about visibility, getting out, talking to people and obviously seeing the clinical settings at work. You're visiting the different islands. What's your split of time? How how are you protecting the time to do that? I don't have any hard and fast rules about that, but I try every day if I can to make sure I'm visible out and about as much as I can, whether that's within the walls of the Balfour, which is the main hospital here, or out in the community or out in the Isles. So I really like to make sure I'm in touch with what I call the heartbeat of the organisation and that kind of reality check for me around, am I grounded? Do I truly know the kind of pulse of the organisation at any one time? If I feel out of the loop on that, I feel like I've got to put myself back in it and really make that effort 
even more so. It's one thing being in meetings all the time and we all have to do that. But actually, if I'm too much in those former meetings, I have to do a walkabout to get out to say, because I'm representing the views of staff in a lot of these meetings and I want to know that I'm legitimately and authentically representing when I say this is how staff feel. Is it truly how staff feel? And I can only know that if I'm really visible and out and about. I just try to be as on the ground as much as I can. Yeah. What's the hardest part of leading for you? Probably pace of change. Those people who know me well, I am very impatient. I work at real pace. Sometimes, though, I go too fast and I'm very alive to that. And I've tried to really slow down because otherwise there's a risk I don't take people with me because I work too fast and think too fast. But I think I get frustrated if things take so long that pace isn't right and therefore we don't move forward and make things better for patients and staff. Because fundamentally at the moment, we are letting some people down here. So I have a duty to change that. And as usual, I'm really impatient around that. (laughs) What do you do to keep yourself in check then? Be really honest with staff. So, you know, I've just had a meeting with a colleague this morning. She is really unhappy here. She said there's no change, not going quick enough. And I said, look, I can't change this overnight. I need you to give me time. But I am committing to making change. And I've given us some examples of things that are being worked on that I perhaps haven't talked fully about to staff at the moment but to give her confidence things are happening and that change is coming but it has to be done in the right way without promising the earth yeah so my final question is what's the one piece of advice you would give to anyone aspiring to be chief executive i think i'd have a couple of strands actually if i might take the liberty of having more than one (laughs) i think firstly always be yourself Secondly, if I can do it, anyone can. And trust me, because it's about learning from brilliant people and being in that position where you're given the opportunity to lead and people taking a bit of a punt on you, I think. But honestly, if I can do it, anyone can. Always appoint people better than you and lead with kindness. If people want to follow your journey as you settle into NHS Orkney or they want to share their thoughts on the interview and say thank you for all the things they've learned, how can they follow you? What social media are you on? I'm on pretty much everything, but probably Twitter is the most sensible. So it's at Laura underscore Scaife. Brilliant. Well, thank you again so much for your time. It's been brilliant having a chat with you. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thanks very much. If you enjoyed this episode please let me know on apple podcasts or on app of choice and drop me a line over on linkedin you can find me at Lee griffith i'll be back with the next episode in two weeks time so in the meantime remember to sign up to my newsletter at sundayskies.com for further insights on how to lead with impact until next time